0: Hello everyone, this is Marie Lupin, Senior Associate to PONERS, the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia. Welcome to our PONERS Eurasia podcast, featuring a series of discussions about Eurasia, the region's politics, and other Russia and Eurasia-related topics. Today we will talk about public perceptions of the COVID epidemic in Russia and the United States. My guests are two pollsters, James Bell, the Pew Research Vice President for Global Strategy, and Denis Volkov, Deputy Director of Livada Center. I will introduce them again a bit later. As of May 4, Russia has reported over 145,000 people infected with COVID, and the United States has reported close to 1.2 million. The number of reported deaths was over 68,500 in the U.S. and about 1,300 in Russia. The numbers may differ by an order of magnitude, but many of the problems faced by the two governments and their populations are not dissimilar. Comparing survey data is always interesting, but even more so now as we look at two large nations facing the same formidable challenge. For all the differences in the political and economic systems or policy-making processes, the two governments, the American and the Russian one, take generally similar measures, as do many other countries of the world. They've closed borders and introduced all kinds of restrictions, such as online schooling, social distancing, business closures, and of course they are launching programs of economic assistance. Both countries brace for economic crises. In the United States, one hears comparisons with the Great Depression. In Russia, economic experts and media commentators remember the major economic meltdown of the 1990s associated with the collapse of the Soviet Union. What also makes the two countries similar is their large size and regional diversity. In Russia, as well as in the United States, some regions have suffered much more than others the state of New York accounts for close to one-third of those infected in the United States and a somewhat higher share of deaths. In Russia, Moscow accounts for about half of those infected and more than half of the deaths. Some of the media reports are also similar. In the United States as well as in Russia, journalists write about overwhelmed hospitals, exhausted doctors who themselves get infected and die of coronavirus. Shortages of tests, equipment, and protective gear have been the alarming reality in both countries. Yet, this is where differences begin. In Russia, such stories may be plenty in alternative, that is, non-government news sources and on social networks, while state-controlled national television channels are much more restrained, to say the least. Same goes for the criticism of the government's insufficient assistance package. For instance, in Russia, independent critics have blamed the government for virtually sacrificing small and medium business. Such critics have a voice in alternative online media or on social networks, but are fully barred from the nationwide audience of state run television. President Trump has been constantly under fire from mainstream media ever since he was elected in twenty sixteen. His statements, his policies, and bizarre medical advice have been sharply criticized. President Putin has been beyond criticism on national television ever since his first presidential term back 20 years ago, and these days state-run television takes every effort to portray the president as the primary decision-maker who solves problems and distributes financial aid. Several European leaders saw their approval rating rise as a result of their government's response to the epidemic, Angela Merkel being the most striking example. In this podcast, we will discuss how the approval ratings of the two respective leaders have changed in the past weeks, and more generally, what people in the United States and in Russia think about their respective government's performance and other COVID-related issues. Let me introduce my interlocutors once again. James Bell, Pew Research Vice President for Global Strategy. Hello, James. Hello. And Denis Volkov, Deputy Director of Livada Center. Hello, Denis. Hello. Thank you both for joining me today. And my first question goes to both of you. How has your work changed because of social distancing and other restrictions? Denis, do you mind to start?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Uh, well, we have, uh, I think, Problems like in any other countries that we could not access homes of our respondents. So we turned to telephone surveys. So we are doing uh, our regular survey that we were doing face to face now uh, through telephone. It is not an entirely new um, methodology for us, of course, but uh, our trends, uh, main trends that we were monitoring, Uh, So now we turn to telephone and uh, have to be, uh, well, cautious making comparisons. But still, we can do this. And actually, it's not only us, but uh, other bigger pollsters doing the same.
0: Okay. James, what about Pew Research Center? How are you managing?
2: So, for the Pew Research Center, it depends on whether you're speaking of our domestic research in the United States on public opinion or internationally. So, domestically, we're fortunate that we created five years ago an online um, survey panel. We call it the American Trends Panel, uh, which we use to conduct virtually all our surveys in the United States. So, in that sense, we've been able to continue our public opinion research uninterrupted. The biggest change for us in the United States is that we are polling more often and uh, not surprisingly, more often on the topic of the coronavirus pandemic. Internationally, we're facing much more of the situation that Denise described in, in for Lavada Center in Russia, and that is that uh, this spring we had planned, for example, to conduct a, a multiple country survey. 38 of those countries were going to be face-to-face. We had to suspend that research because it's simply, ethically, we didn't want to put our interviewers or communities at risk, public health-wise. And then government restrictions have made it impossible to do face-to-face work. So we're hoping to get back in the field. We're looking at telephone surveys, just like Denise described, uh, as a way to continue research. We'll be doing phone surveys in more than a dozen countries later this spring. But it's been a big change internationally for us.
0: Right. It's been a big change for many people in many different countries and many different trades. So, uh, coronavirus should be the most talked about topic today all over the world and a matter of primary concern for the people in both countries that we're talking about, the United States and Russia. Is that so? And since when has this been the case? How quickly has the topic of the coronavirus overshadowed other topics? And before you answer, because in my introduction, I mentioned uh, Russian state television. I would say that the main nightly news in early May opened with the news, not of coronavirus, but of the upcoming 20th anniversary of President Putin's inauguration ahead of the news of the epidemic, which was a bizarre choice uh, in my view. But uh, what about the people? Uh, is it? Is it indeed the most talked about topic today? James?
2: happy to respond uh, based on what we're seeing in the United States. So it is amazing to see how rapidly uh, in the U.S. anyway, the topic of the coronavirus and the pandemic has surged to the front of people's minds. In our polling, we were actually in the field between uh, March 10th and uh, 24th of this year, which is when uh, the, the nature of the pandemic took on a much more serious uh, tone and serious level of concern among public officials, and the public responded. So from the beginning of that poll towards the end, uh, the increase in people saying they were concerned about the health of the U.S. population as a whole. It went from 47% early in that survey period around March 10th to um, almost uh, two-thirds, 66%, being concerned about that by uh, March 24th. So right there, you can see in a very small window of a couple weeks how public opinion, awareness, and concern shifted. And then with the U.S. economy uh, also being closely linked in people's minds to the consequences of the pandemic, similarly, not as dramatic, but still a significant change from Earlier in the month of March, 70% saying the U.S. economy was at risk from the coronavirus to almost 86% saying that towards the end of the month. So a real change in how people are thinking about things. Even more dramatically in January, the topic of most concern in terms of how people wanted the Congress and President to prioritize their attention, the focus was on terrorism. So a lot has changed in how the public's thinking about things.
0: Right. Denise, um, what about Russia? When would you say coronavirus has become the most talked about topic and uh, how fast, how rapid has this process been?
1: Well, according to our data, uh, it has been the number one topic since uh, March, already since March. But at the same time, we see that the majority of people uh, experienced uh, the changes in their day-to-day uh, uh, routine only in April. Because in March, uh, uh, we saw that more than one half was not uh, touched by the crisis itself, but uh, already uh, about uh, 70% were uh, naming it the number one issue, the most interesting topic. And we can compare it in our research with such topics as uh, presidential elections uh, two years ago or Olympic Games. So it really catched the attention of uh, of the nation already, already early in spring.
0: And since this is a matter of such high concern, what are the most trusted sources? And uh, what probably other sources people do not trust very much? Do they trust official numbers? What is the situation like in Russia in this respect?
1: Well, uh, of course... Uh There is, uh, uh, I don't think there was uh, a bigger changes in the uh, trust in the sources of information. The major source still is TV. Uh, TV, of course, for uh, uh, older generations and uh, internet is growing as a source of information, but still it's uh, number two source. And we see that uh, only one third, I think, one third of population have trust in the uh, official coverage of this topic. But at the same time, the same surveys show that the uh, trust uh, into uh, TV uh, even I would say, increased a little bit compared to uh, two previous years, because the biggest blow to uh, trust in television coverage came after pension reform was introduced. And after that, we saw that uh, this source, little by little, was recovering trust in itself. So there was some changes, but the changes are not dramatic, I would say.
0: Okay. And television, as I mentioned, sometimes makes strange choices for what is their number one news. James, what about the United States? Uh, Because of harsh political polarization in in the United States, how does polarization factor in the perception of the virus and on um, which sources are trusted or not trusted?
2: Yes. So I would start by just describing generally for all Americans uh, before addressing the point on polarization that uh, what we found in our April survey just completed just a little over a week ago is that um, clearly uh, majority of Americans are relying on national news outlets. And that includes television and and, and newspaper outlets, both 56 percent saying that's their major source of information on the coronavirus outbreak. And also public uh, health organizations and officials, 51% relying on them as a source of information about the pandemic. That contrasts with only 31% who are relying on President Trump and the official coronavirus task force as a major source of information. So, you know, when you look at the landscape or where people are turning in, in some ways, it's both to traditional media and to experts And I think that's notable uh, as we think about where people are getting the information. I'd also just note what we thought was very interesting is that people are seeing the coronavirus outbreak as both a national and local issue. Six in 10 Americans are paying equal attention to what's happening in their local community as well as the nation. So it's both uh, local and a national news story for people. To your point about polarization, uh, we've looked at this issue over many years at the Pew Research Center We've seen the polarization or the balkanization of the media landscape according to one's political affiliation. And just recently, we were doing uh, research on this this past November. Again, you see the contrast where Democrats or those who lean Democratic are turning to certain channels within the news information landscape, like CNN. Um, you know, two thirds of Democrats say that's where they're turning to uh, and trust their news. Whereas Republicans, And those are lean Republican, Fox News dominates. So you really do, to your point, see contrasting sources of information in general uh, among people in the United States, depending on their political affiliation.
0: And apparently the coverage differs channel to channel. And uh, the coverage of the epidemic on Fox is different from that on uh, CNN or MSNBC, right?
2: Yes. So depending on where someone gets their news, for example, we asked in March um, how you know, what percentage of the people think a vaccine will be available in a year or more, which has been something discussed much, uh, still continues to be discussed. Uh, People who are turning mostly to MSNBC, uh, roughly three quarters, you know, think that's the case. Um, So know about that story, only 51% uh, following Fox News knew that. So there's a big disparity and just knowledge in general, let alone uh, leaving aside anything about politics.
0: Right. So did you say, did I get you right, that 56% tend to turn to national television?
2: National news outlets. So it's more than just television. you would include New York Times and other sources, too.
0: Okay. All right. Got you. Well... Uh, Denise, we do not have such polarization in Russia, however, it would be probably wrong to say that Russians all speak in one voice and they're all unanimous. Where do you see the dividing lines in Russia? Are they demographic? Are they political? How do people differ when they respond to your questions about COVID?
1: Well, uh, we ask questions more about uh, the governmental response to coronavirus, I can uh, Uh, measure this. Uh, Of course, uh, there were some people who denied the uh, virus altogether, and uh, uh, there were more of them at the very beginning, and uh, in uh, uh, in February and uh, early in March, uh, in focus groups, we had these people saying that Russia would be exempt from this uh, virus and we uh, will be safe and so on. But uh, as I said, the uh, situation uh, changed uh, uh, dramatically uh, now. And uh, uh, when we speak about the divisions, uh, I think uh, they are not new divisions. The station only sharpened already existing divisions in our society with active parts of population, biggest cities that are more skeptical about the situation, about the response of the government to the situation, and at the same time, the biggest cities are places that were hit, first of all, by this virus. And speaking of other groups, it's uh, uh, educated people who are more skeptical. And uh, I think uh, uh, entrepreneurs as a special group, many of whom were hit by the quarantine, not by the virus, but the uh, quarantine measures, and who are waiting for the governmental support and haven't yet got, uh, got it. And I think this group is uh, maybe the most, uh, most critical. Again, entrepreneurs who are not rely on uh, uh, state contracts, but uh, uh, first of all, in the sphere of uh, services, Like uh, everywhere else, I think uh, biggest cities in Russia were hit uh, by the situation uh, very much. And uh, those people are still rather critical of what government is doing.
0: Uh, Denise, when you say critical, do you mean people believe that government policies are insufficient or excessive? And uh, if you have these numbers, apparently there should be a group of people, a category that believes that measures are just adequate. Uh, do you have an idea of how people are divided along these lines? Adequate, insufficient or excessive?
1: So uh, about half of the population uh, think that uh, the response is adequate. And uh, these are uh, mostly elderly people. Uh, pensioners, again, uh, uh, they are uh, among the well most protected by the states. Uh, maybe this protection is not very big, I mean, the, the support is not very high, but still they are guaranteed some income and they feel secure. But it's not only elderly people, but elderly people, first of all. Uh, about one third of population think that the measures are inadequate and they would welcome more support, uh, more uh, spendings, governmental spendings. And only I think uh, less than twenty percent say that the government overreact, and these uh, these are um, well young people. I think uh, again uh, people in biggest cities, and this uh, issue of uh, new police state that is mount, uh, this uh, spying on people and so on is uh, very um, popular uh, on social networks. But still, I think it's, uh, it is not shared by the bigger part of population because many, many are not uh, good users of the Internet and uh, do not feel secure on the Internet. And uh, they are ready to transfer part of uh, this care to the state, uh, make state uh, uh, supervise this.
0: James, what, what about the United States? Is it uh, does it make sense to um, look at uh, the American society from this perspective, whether they believe government measures are adequate, insufficient, or excessive?
2: Right. So uh, I think you know some some people may have taken note of the protests in the United States uh, around the restrictions that government has imposed, both at the you know guidelines of the national government, but at the state level in particular. But you know, when we asked about this uh, in the first part, middle of March, really, uh, we saw strong support for these restrictions and didn't get a real sense for any kind of resistance among the public. Now, this is a fast-changing story, uh, but those percentages are pretty overwhelmingly, even among Republicans, in favor of you know restricting the movement of people and travel and shuttering businesses, at least temporarily. But it is a fast-moving story, and now we're in, you know the beginning of May, and uh, it's a kind of question that we'll want to go back into the field with and find out if attitudes have changed. I would note to what I was saying before uh, about polarization and its impact on um, both knowledge and opinion, just to clarify what I was saying. I mean, it may the story may change, and it may have this sense of division between Republicans and Democrats, because what I was saying before about you know whether people believe there will be a vaccine available uh, any uh, only after a year or more that's the majority view among those who listen to MSNBC and watch that channel among fox news it's only half of things is going to take that long among fox news 27% think that it's only going to be a matter of months before there's a vaccine compared to 7% among uh, people who watch MSNBC as their prime source of news so This sense of different stories and different narratives emerging and being held um, by different people, often depending on their political affiliation, I think will be a factor in how people uh, react to continuing government restrictions in the United States.
0: Indeed. And you mentioned public protests and what one sees on television or internet these days. We can see what is going on in the U.S. easily from our homes, from our computers. Well, to me as a Russian, this looks shocking. Aggressive public protests, sometimes by gun-toting people. Huge rallies, people carrying signs such as free small business or you cannot quarantine the Constitution. How popular do you think these sentiments are? And are they concentrated in particular states, do you think? Or can it be estimated how popular these sentiments are nationally?
2: Well, from our polling, uh, as of the middle of April, again, you know, we're seeing overall more concern that the restrictions would be lifted too quickly by governments, by state governments in particular. So that was 66% of Americans overall said their greater concern was that the restrictions in place to you know, limit the spread and impact of the coronavirus uh, would be lifted too quickly compared to fewer than half that amount, 32% saying not lifted quickly enough. Now, again, it's a fast-moving story, but even in the middle of April, you had uh, Republicans divided on this issue um, with you know, 51% of Republicans overall saying they were concerned it would be lifted too quickly compared to 48% saying not lifted quickly enough. So that's an interesting divide among Republicans that could shift and maybe has already shifted um, since we took that uh, temperature reading. Um, Among Democrats, it's clearly a majority think the restrictions could be lifted too quickly. So is this a popular movement? Uh, Just at the national level, if you look at our April findings, it wouldn't look like a popular movement in April. Uh, Today, or in May. I can't tell you today yet until we have new readings from the field about where Americans are coming down on this issue.
0: Right. Apparently, uh, Russians are more acquiescent, and uh, we certainly do not see public protests like those that one can see in the United States. Um, what's your sense as a pollster or maybe just as an American? Those people who take part, who join those uh, aggressive rallies, are they uh, are all of them Trump supporters?
2: Um It's it's difficult for me to say as a pollster relying on the surveys that we're conducting, so I wouldn't want to speculate too much about that. What I could say is that the broader context that certainly is registering with Americans of all political stripes is the economic impact of the virus. So there's the public health dimension, which is, you know, the rationale for the restrictions. But this idea of getting back to work Uh, which seems to be part of the the narrative these days. I mean, that's been a concern clearly among the people we're polling in the United States uh, for well over a month now. And the pressures are enormous, especially on the lower income families in the United States, who, you know, uh, 30% told us that in any month, you know, if you're a lower income family, you're struggling to pay the bills. But that's going up towards almost four in 10, saying that uh, for the current period, because of the economic uh, consequences of the virus uh, shutting down so much of the economy. So I think all I can say is that the context and the pressures uh, in particular segments of the population who are currently uh, furloughed or laid off or waiting to get back to work, those are pretty intense from our polling.
0: Denise, would you say that in Russia, the economic factor is uh, a matter of primary concern for the people more important than health concerns, more important than maybe the fear of falling sick with coronavirus?
1: Well, uh, uh, the situation is that uh, in March we uh, saw in our uh, uh, surveys that uh, the uh, economic situation uh, worsened and uh, declined and uh, the estimates of the current economic situation and the future economic situation went down uh, declined and it is very much uh, it looks like uh, very much the situation in in the end of uh, 2014 or 2008 to form economic uh, crises. so we see that uh, the the people are well they are afraid to to lose uh, their incomes and i think this situation it is not only about um, coronavirus it uh, in russia is more vulnerable to falling oil prices and so we see i think exactly uh, because of this we see these changes in uh, uh, in march when uh, the uh, oil prices went down uh, considerably and uh, people saw it and were afraid so and uh, the quarantine also is adding to this situation and we already see that some people are starting to lose their jobs and uh, they fear to uh, lose it in, in the future. They fear that they will lose money. And uh, I think this situation will have more profound effect. This economic aftermath of uh, quarantine, uh, economic uh, aftermath of the virus will have more uh, profound effect on the uh, social sentiment on the ratings uh, of the authorities.
0: So you expect that the consequences for Putin and his approval rating may be negative, but not straight away, not anytime very soon?
1: Uh, Yes, again, uh, speaking, for example, on the protest sentiment, we see that it declined uh, in uh, a couple of recent months. Uh, It's only, I think, about... Not more than 10, around 10% who are ready to protest. Uh, First of all, people with low income. Uh, And uh, not that much. Uh, Several months ago, we had about 20% we saw some protests uh, online but i think it's uh, the minority of young people who are ready to do this and uh, some protests uh, uh, offline protests like in vladikavkaz which i read as um, a protest of uh, people who have uh, do not uh, who do not have enough money to uh, go on so vladikavkaz not very uh, rich uh, city, so it's uh, people who need money uh, for their day-to-day activities, they already go to protest uh, because they want to go to work. But uh, according to our measurements in um, former economic crises, we saw that the uh, such conditions the worsening of situation, have effect on the ratings of authorities only in uh, several months from uh, the time when the crisis began. So in Russia, I think the government has several, several months to try to cope with the situation. But again, it's, the situation is uh, uh, rather serious because uh, all these economic measurements, economic uh, indicators, they have inertia. So it's very hard to change these moods when they start to uh, decline.
0: Okay, um, so in our share, we'll wait, but the story is moving fast as uh, James is telling us. James, what do you think the consequences may be for President Trump, or do you see any? And uh, do you see any categories, demographic or otherwise, who used to be Trump supporters and maybe uh, maybe losing trust in, in him now?
2: Um, so in as a matter of uh, <clears throat> just in priorities, The Pew Research Center doesn't track Trump's approval rating week to week, others do. And in general pattern overall in the United States is that his ratings in in recent weeks, months have been very volatile. Um, What is notable if we look back just as a point of comparison to the ratings for President George Bush in the wake of 9-11, the approval rating for Bush at that time, just soon after in late September was 86% approval. What has not happened in the case of a coronavirus outbreak, is that same kind of uh, massive upswing in approval for the president uh, of the United States today. So that's one thing to note. Um, so in general, it's a very divided opinion of Trump's uh, job performance right now from the sources that we look at. Um, you know, it's about 50-50 more or less, and it moves up and down. Um, you know, people are thinking about the election, I can tell you from our polling There are already concerns that the coronavirus outbreak and its continuing reverberations in society may actually disrupt the uh, November vote, meaning that it'll make it more difficult for people to cast their ballot uh, potentially or complicate the actual voting uh, at polling stations. So already people are imagining there are some uh, potential challenges there. In terms of shifts in opinion, as you pointed out earlier, the polarization uh, of Americans in general is very intense we've tracked that since at least 2014 as a growing trend, even Americans themselves when we ask them uh, do you think you know that polarization and differences between Democrats and Republicans are easing uh, under the current circumstances we find ourselves in there was some sense that it was easing up a bit, but still a majority of Americans uh, both parties think that the the actual trend is still towards increasing polarization so what I'm trying to say is, I think uh, those divisions in society, as Denise was saying, predate the pandemic, and they're not. The pandemic is not necessarily making a dramatic change in those. So, I think that in many ways, the divisions we had before will will still be evident in the uh, politics of the coming months.
0: Right. So, with the United States presidential election in November, President Trump probably will be the first of the two to meet his major challenge, and we will see how the epidemic affect his public support but with Putin too it's hard to believe that the epidemic will not be a serious challenge as Denis has mentioned so it remains for us to wait and see and because this is a fast-moving story and both of you will certainly be back in the field I hope there will be a chance to discuss these matters with you again in a while thank you both
2: absolutely thank you,
0: thank you James Bell thank you and thank you Denis Volkov thank you